Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. We're jumping straight in today so I can get going to work. So Tesla is launching new V4 superchargers in Europe. So Tesla has upgraded its supercharger network in Europe with V4 superchargers that have longer cables, making it easier to drivers to access the cables. Globally, this same network is consists of up to consists of over 40,000 stalls and roughly 4,700 stations. Tesla is expanding its supercharging network in Europe with plans to install thousands new chargers over the next few years. So the reason this is in here, not that big of an update, not that wild, but if you have watched any videos on charging other cars at Tesla's stations since they started doing that, one of the biggest problems is the cables aren't long enough to reach some of the vehicles. Due to Tesla always expecting people to back into charge, the cables don't have to be very long. So longer cables are going to be needed if they're going to keep if they're going to keep expanding the system to other EVs and allowing those EVs to charge there. So how important is it for fast, reliable charging? I've talked about this plenty of times in the past. It needs to get as good as getting a gas car filled. It maybe doesn't have to get as fast, but at least the access to chargers that work with your vehicle needs to match that of a gas vehicle. So with the popular, will there be enough charging infrastructure? I think currently with how fast they're pushing electric vehicles and how they're currently doing it with everybody kind of having these different connectors, I don't think it's going to happen fast enough for the amount of vehicles being bought. But that said, it's hard to, you know, maybe with Tesla making this move here, maybe other people will join in and help out, and then it won't be that bad. Then they'll be, they'll be in a better spot. Next up, we have a Tesla co-founder, uh, JVU Straubel, I think is how you say it. Uh, his company, his new company, has shown a 95 efficiency rate for recycling lithium-ion batteries, which I this has to be one of the highest, if not the highest, uh, recycling rate possible. So the the pilot project only used mechanical recycling methods, which involved breaking down the batteries into their components and then processing them, which, even if it's taking that, depending on how much it's costing them to do that, that's not bad. So his company's called Redwood, and it's already got a deal with Panasonic to sell them and recycle them in the form of high nickel cathode 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 materials why do i feel like i'm saying that word weird now they've also partnered with other automakers such as audi and vw group and the company has even scored about two billion dollar loan to help its scale so this is mechanical is one of the methods chemical is one of the other ones this seems like a much higher return on efficiency but i don't know if it's more expensive or not there wasn't much in the way of details that way just that they've hit this 95 percent efficiency rate which is rather staggering so how this will affect the future this is a big deal apparently they can do this with not just car batteries but also phones and stuff like that i don't i can't imagine the return on phones is nearly as good as electric vehicles but the fact that they're able to do this shows that we can get rid of a lot of the waste Again, this just adds a ton of cost to doing this. And that's where you got to wonder how worth it really will be to be doing it this way. But they're out here doing it. And at least somebody is doing it. And at least if they're making deals here, that is a good start.
that shows that it's not too expensive. Otherwise, these companies wouldn't be striking deals with them. I mean, Panasonic's one of the largest battery manufacturers in the world. So it's good to see that they're you know, making this happen. Next, we have the FDA blocks Neuralink trials. Uh, this I don't believe this is the first time this has happened. So the FDA uh, blocked Neuralink's <laughs> trials of doing the brain computer this year, I believe in February. Uh, the FDA was, there's not a ton of details on this to be clear. It's just more that it's happening. So like people don't think that Neuralink's just out here sticking wires in people's brains. Uh, so the implant wires were a concern for them. The thinner than individual hairs could migrate to the brain and cause inflammation, rupturing blood vessels and impairing brain function. So they were also concerned about the device overheating and whether it could be removed from people's brains without causing damage. Uh, the FDA is, you know, basically concerned about the long-term effects of this technology, which it just hasn't been around long enough to really know. But that said, at some point, they're going to have to do human trials. And at some point, there probably will be some mistakes. Do I want that to happen? No. Will it probably happen? Unfortunately, with technology like this, there's bound to feel be guinea pigs sentence bad and the fda was also concerned about the safety of the rechargeable lithium batteries that Neuralink has proposed for this device uh, the company basically said that they needed to do more testing to show unlikely to malfunction so yeah what are some of the potential benefits of this technology i think they've showed off a few of them allowing people to walk again is a big one and just being able to connect opposite sides of the spinal cord if necessary. I know this is also technology that could lead to curing certain diseases. And that is awesome as well. We'll just It's a wait and see game to see what they're really capable of and how much we really understand about the brain. And until that happens, who really knows what's going to go down? So SpaceX has made its 101st straight landing without issue. The Crew-6 mission successfully launched into orbit early Thursday morning after its first attempt was called off due to ignition system issues. The spacecraft carried four astronauts on about a 24-and-a-half-hour flight, which is you know, shorter than some airplane flights. You can't really complain about that. SpaceX is conducting six, its sixth human operation uh, spaceflight for NASA, according to the mission Crew-6. The Falcon 9 rocket's first stage, shiny and clean, on the launch pad was flying its very first fish, JK. It, the, the actual Falcon 9 rocket's first stage was flying its first mission, but the Dragon spacecraft, spacecraft, holy, I can't talk today. The Dragon spacecraft is making its fourth overall flight. So, since the drone ship landing fa failure, oh my gosh, like literally, in February 2021, SpaceX has reeled off about a hundred consecutive. <laughs> SpaceX has done about a hundred consecutive successful booster landings, and Monday morning's return made for a 101. So, what what impact do you think SpaceX Crew Dragon will have on future space travel? One of the craziest things about this is it's pretty much all automated for the pilots. They don't actually have to do that much once they're up and going. It's really straightforward for them. And it's super automated and just super advanced tech. I mean, easily one of the most advanced rockets out there, especially with all the touchscreens 
and the automation that Tesla has going on with working with SpaceX. I know a lot of the engineers work at both companies from my understanding. So that's wild. And the advancements they're making so quickly, I mean, to not have an error for 101 and be able to reuse that is extremely crazy when you start thinking about it. And what challenges do you think the astronauts on board will face during their six, I don't know if it's actually a six month stay on this international space station. Uh, ChatGPT wrote this question and I did not double check its stuff, but what challenges? I have no clue. I don't know that much about space as I assume most people don't know that much about space. Ford is restarting the F-150 Lightning production on March 13th. They announced the day this will be happening. So they originally stopped production in early February after one of its vehicles displayed a battery issue, which I believe was actually just a fire. So battery issue, fire, all in the same to Ford. Crazy. It sounds like Ford suspects this to have been one of the battery cells provided by SK On, the supplier for the F-150 Lightning. Yeah, and then it says here that it was actually a fire that occurred in the factory holding lot. So Ford has invested heavily into this truck, clearly, and <laughs> and the uh, the interesting thing here for me is that it's been on hold for such a while, and supposedly they have crazier demand than they thought they would, and they can't keep up. So how are they putting this thing on hold for several weeks and think they're going to be fine? But I guess we'll just find out. Yeah, how will the restart of the F-150 Lightning production affect the electric pickup truck market? Probably not much, because if you can't keep up and you put something on pause, you're not keeping up. So it's just going to be longer till that thing's ready to go again. And yeah, I mean, it's one of the most popular electric pickup trucks. What challenges will Ford face for meeting the high demand? These discussion questions blow. But, uh, yeah, they're going to just, it's going to be hard to catch back up for one. And for two, I can't imagine that it'll be easy for Ford to go out of their way here. And, you know, actually, hang on. I mean, let me back up a second here. It's going to be wild to watch a company like Ford keep making these vehicles like a new model every year and then being like, yeah, it's the 2023, yeah, it's the 2024, yeah, it's the 2025. And they can't keep up with the current edition. This is, again, where I think Tesla's version of minor upgrades for years and then major upgrade, where they actually, like, redo some parts of the vehicle on the outside. I mean, the inside's constantly evolving, but announcing these new versions doesn't seem necessary when you already are having issues. So <laughs> let's just see what happens here with Ford. So YouTube TV is... Also trying 1080p premium, if you were here for the YouTube 1080p premium. I don't think they're actually calling it premium, but supposedly that some users have been experiencing improved video quality with higher bitrate streaming. So the service began testing its new playback option that will have you know higher bitrate. And I even saw some articles stating up to 4K res. I don't know if that was for all channels, but certain channels at least. And even at 1080p, this would make sense with higher-res TVs with, you know, and more quality TVs being on the market. 4K getting way cheaper. And OLED, it's much easier to see artifacting and everything else on a TV. So 
this is a great way for YouTube TV to be separating itself from the rest of the pack. And yeah, it makes sense that they're testing this both on YouTube and YouTube TV. Why wouldn't they? They have a great video compression on YouTube. Why not also use that on YouTube TV? Because you can pretty much do the opposite with it if you really want to. So how important is video quality when you come to choosing a streaming service? And would you be willing to pay more for this? This is where it gets interesting for me. So video quality for a streaming service, I feel like it's at a point where for most people, it's fine. Do they really care if it gets better? Not really. Would it be nice if it got better? Probably. But even from what they're recording from like in-house, they only record at like 720 to 1080p. So does it really, really matter here? And no, I don't think you're going to be really able to convince anybody to pay more for it. But at the same time, I don't even know if people care if the video quality is higher because people have been fine with the same video quality forever. So why would upping it matter? I think for some people, obviously it will matter. But for everybody, I don't really know about that. The next question is with the rise of high-speed internet and 5G, will streaming services continue to prioritize video quality over other features? Yeah, again, I think that at the end of the day for YouTube TV, it's going to matter more about just getting some other channels more than it's going to matter about quality. Not that they shouldn't be doing it. Quality will matter at some point even more. And it would be nice. Like think of when there's a close call in a sports game, how nice would it be to watch that in 4k where if they zoomed it in, it wouldn't look like garbled garbage. It would still look good, but we're just going to have to wait and see here. There's just, it's, it's up to the, to the YouTube gods, as people would say. Apple has a new headset patent that just went through. So Apple's upcoming XR headset may feature a new handoff method that would allow for seamless transitioning between Apple devices. It seems to be like if you've used handoff with like a HomePod where you can just tap it and give your you know music over to the HomePod instead of your phone, it seems to be very similar to that, but with a lot more things. So one of the examples they were using in the patent would be like, you're working on a document on your phone. You put the headset on, you want to work in there, you can hand it off. You want to work back on your desktop, you can hand it off. You don't lose progress. It's all done through the cloud, which isn't that different than, I don't know if it's called handoff, but it's kind of like airdrop or I know you can do that in some Apple applications where they'll auto sync like that really quickly, but we'll see here. The patent also suggests that handoff would use a variety of centers. Holy, let's try again. The patent also suggests that the headset would use a variety of sensors, such as a depth camera and an accelerometer to track the position and movements in the real world. Not shocking. You need those to know what's going on. You also, this would just basically tell us that if this headset is real and is coming out, that it's going to have outward cameras, which would be pretty normal for these kind of headsets. So it's rumored that this will actually be coming this year, possibly after apparently years of delay, but again, all rumors and you know, who really knows? So how might this handoff method impact user experience with a user experience like this? It seems like they're trying to use it more in an enterprise way than like a gaming way, which kind of seems like how Apple would go anyways is try to advertise towards the commercial crowd, especially first off. But 
That also said, there could be great applications where if you have maybe an Apple One subscription and you're playing a game there, you can pass it off and play the VR version or vice versa. I'm guessing. But this would be actually a cool feature. Say you're watching a movie and then someone comes in the room and you're like, oh, let's watch together. I don't know why you're watching on your headset, but in the like family room. But then you can pass it off to the Apple TV or something. I don't know. I could see use cases for it. I just when you're used to using a VR headset for gaming only, you don't see a feature like this being like super into it. But it would make sense that if they're going for more of an enterprise, I believe this is supposed to be like a VR and AR kind of component. So like say you're working on an engine and it's showing you the parts or what to do. And then you take your headset off and you're like trying to go through the manual on your phone. And you want to be at the same spot you were. That kind of would make sense. So I could see it going that way. I could see him making it that way. And, you know, what other potential applications could this technology have beyond VR and AR? Like I said, this could come to all of their devices and be even more prevalent than just, like, handoff music to HomePod. Uh, being able to just, you know, say you kind of just push your phone at your laptop and all of a sudden whatever's on your phone screen pops up on the laptop. I could see use for that. Especially, um, AirDrop's great, but you have to like activate it and stuff. If you could just tap your devices together and it would do it, that could be pretty sweet technology to have in a device. So with that said, I think that's going to be it for today. Kind of a rapid fire episode because I have to get going, but an episode nonetheless. So hopefully you enjoyed that one and I'll talk to you guys in the next one.